The Bible says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, uh, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms, or asked for a handout. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him, with John said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. What an awesome thing would have been to have seen this. Peter and John walk up to a guy who's laying right outside of the temple, and he can't walk. And they uh, look at him, and they say to him, rise up and walk. They take him by the hand. And help him up, and for the first time in his life, he's walking. Boy, it would have been great to have been there and seen that, wouldn't it, Ben? Well, tonight we're going to look at this topic, if Christ be lifted up. If Christ be lifted up. Through this miracle, Peter gained himself an opportunity to preach Jesus. And many people got saved. One of the things we're going to dive into in this sermon tonight is this idea of miracle working and miracle workers and why we don't see more men or men at all really performing miracles like this in Acts chapter 3. And we're going to open up the scriptures and look at that tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, would you help us to understand uh, the passage, help us to understand the sermon, and help us, Lord, to leave here challenged to not only lift you up with uh, the way we live, but with what we say. And Lord, may we be um, a good representation of you everywhere we go. And Lord, help us to know that if you be high and lifted up, Lord God, you are going to draw all men unto yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Give me just a minute here to work out a technical detail. I don't believe my mic is working. Is that correct? Do you have lapel two back there? Could you run that up here to me? Okay. My mic's on. It's just not operational. We're having a connection issue here. Okay, while he's doing that, I'm going to try to move forward with the message here. Now, last Sunday night we didn't have services because of the amount of snow that was falling out of the sky. It would have made it a little bit difficult. Thank you very much. Uh, but two weeks ago, we took a long, hard look at the topic of revival. Remember, the title of the sermon was The Formula for Revival. We looked at that. Uh, in great length and talked about what had to happen for Acts chapter 2 uh, for all of the events to take place. And I gave you three words that begin with the letter U that are necessary for revival to happen amongst a group of saved believers or a church. And here, the, here are those three words, unity, unity, unction, and that means Holy Spirit filling, unity, unction, and utterance, unity, unction, and utterance. Once a church gets to a place where they have settled their disagreements and their offenses with each other, their 
together in one mind, and they're walking together in one spirit, and they're praying together, and uh, they're bonding their hearts together. You have unity, and that leads to, naturally, the Holy Spirit filling. Now, I made the point uh, in that message that when you got saved, you got all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. The question now is, how much are you going to give of yourself to the Holy Spirit. There is a yielding and a submissiveness that takes place, and we have to give up uh, our own desire, and we have to say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. So unity and unction, and that leads to an utterance, where we open our mouth and we declare the things of, the, of God from a position of purity, from a heart of sincerity, from a heart of desire to do that which pleases the Lord. Now, once these three things are realized by a local body of believers, then it begins to bleed over into the community around. People who are godless uh, begin to find their way to salvation because of the power of God that is felt through the church. Notice what Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 32. He said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Now, Jesus was physically lifted up from the earth when he was placed on the cross. There he hung between God and man. And there he uh, was bearing the sins of mankind and enduring the wrath of God on the cross. And because he suffered in our place, he who knew no sin became our sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He endured our pain on the cross and he set us free. Jesus has been lifted up. And because of that, here we are 2,000 years later, and people every day, especially on Sundays, are flocking to the cross to be saved. Now, um, why aren't more people drawn to salvation? And I would say that God has left it up to the church to properly lift up Christ to the world. And boy, as a church, as, as a whole around the world and in America, we're really not doing a very good job. Now, I would say that White Oak Baptist Church, I would give us, if I'm being honest and I'm not grading on a curve, I would give us about a B-. minus. We're doing it. Uh, the gospel's preached here from the pulpit, and uh, we're going out on, um, on Sundays, or rather on Saturdays, and organ in an organized way, we're giving out the gospel. And uh, throughout the week, many of you are handing out gospel tracts. We have people like Miss Pat that are witnessing to their landlord. Amen. But hey, couldn't we all do a little bit better? Couldn't we all do a little bit more? Amen? And so we, as we lift up Christ, He draws all men to Him. Now, on your outline there, I'd like to give you two words by way of introduction. They won't be on the screen, but by way of introduction, two words in how we lift up Christ. Okay? How do we lift up Christ? First, write down the word lifestyle. We lift Him up with our lifestyle, our lifestyle. I've heard preachers preach against lifestyle evangelism. Oh, lifestyle evangelism, you people that believe in lifestyle evangelism. What is that? And I have to say, lifestyle evangelism is a thing. 
You going out and living your life in a way that's different than the world, and you living your life by a book of, uh, 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 rather by a code of morals that's found in the Bible, and abiding by the thou shalt's and the thou shalt nots, and um, uh, being kind to your neighbor, and being kind to your enemy, and loving the world around you, and uh, having joy in your heart during times of trouble, and having a peace that passes all understanding. All of these things are Christian attributes that we ought to embrace, that ought to call the world's attention. But that's not the only way we lift up Christ. With our lifestyle, and then write the second word down, lips. With our lips. It isn't just enough to lift up Christ by the way we live. We must also declare it with our lips who Jesus is and what he did. Now, watch this. Watch this now. If we lift up Christ with our lifestyle and not our lips, then the lost will likely never understand the details of the gospel. They'll never understand the details of the gospel. You know, uh, an example here, okay? You get together for a family reunion, maybe two, three, four times a year, and there you and your family are at the family reunion, and you and your kids and your spouse, they dress a little bit different, you talk a little bit different, there's substances you won't partake in, There's language that's different. And everyone at that family reunion scratches their head and says, boy, they're different. And you know the talking that goes around behind your back? Well, what's different about uncle such and such or or aunt such and such? How come my cousins are are different? And someone speaks up and says, because they go to church. Oh, they found religion. And you go your merry way and you see them at the next family reunion. And then they just accept, well, you know, they're different because they found religion. But if you don't open up your lips and articulate the gospel, how are they going to find religion? You with me? It's not just enough to preach the gospel with the way we live. We have to be able and willing to open up our mouth and declare it with our lips. But what if we reverse that? How about someone that lifts up Christ with their lips but not their lifestyle? Oh, that's bad. That's bad. I have known people that pass out gospel tracts everywhere they go. They'll witness to anything that moves. The Bible says that we're to witness to every creature, so they witness to the dogs and the, and the cats and the plants. Amen? Anything that has life, boy, they're witnessing to it. Uh, they, they, they just, they're just soul winning away while they're living a lifestyle that is sinful and hypocritical and And you know what? Someone looks at you and says, why would I want your Christ? You're living just as sinful as I am. You know what? You don't get... I want to just say this here. You don't get to go soul winning on Saturday and then live however you want to on Monday and think that somehow it all washes out on the end. That's not how it works. If you're going to tell the world about Jesus with your lips... Boy, it sure would help if you would back up that message with your lifestyle. Let's be good about that. We do a lot of damage. Hey, by the way, isn't that what the Pharisees did? Isn't that what the Pharisees did? They knew all the right words in the the synagogue and in the temple, but Jesus looked at them and said, you're full of dead men's bones. You're, You're a whited sepulcher. You look great on the outside, You're full of emptiness and hypocrisy on the inside. Now, lifting up Christ, lifting up Christ, we'll see with Peter here and Peter and John here in a minute, 
what did they do? What did they do? They lifted up Christ with their lifestyle and with their lips. Let me say that again. They lifted up Christ with their lifestyle, by the way they lived, and with their lips. Hey, listen, if you uh, clock out on time but quit ten minutes early and your coworkers see that, you've just discredited yourself with the gospel. You text your coworker and say, hey, here's my birthday, punch in for me, I'll be there in ten minutes but your co-worker's punching in for you on time. And then all of a sudden at break time, you want to tell them about Jesus. Wait a minute, you just stole company time. Why are they going to listen to you? You're a child at school and you're cheating uh, off your classmates' paper or you're copying their homework, but then you want to invite them to church. Boy, you're telling them about Jesus with your lips. But your lifestyle discredits your message altogether. Altogether. We need to make sure that we're careful to do both. Now, no one here, it mean, I do not mean to imply that you need to be perfect. But what I do mean is that we all need to be humble and we need to make the effort to live like Christ and then express Christ with our lips. Now, in Acts chapter 2, the culmination of revival took place in the gospel message became very contagious. Why? There was a culture of unity, unction, and utterance that had been established by the 120 in that upper room, those disciples. Um, and, and as the church grow, that culture of unity, unction, and utterance continued. Let me again say that. Once they got the culture right, they worked to keep it right. 3,000 joined the church the day of Pentecost. We'll see in a couple of chapters later, 5,000 more are going to join all at one time. The church would be added to daily and then multiplied to. But all the same, that spirit, that culture that began in that upper room continued through that church because that culture was established. One of the things that I've worked hard to do over the last four and a half years of my pastorate here at White Oak Baptist Church is take the culture that was handed to me by Pastor Brown and Pastor Peslak, refine it just a little bit more. Boy, I thank God I received such a healthy church, but refine it a little bit more and have a culture that marches forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ and effectively reaches the world. And I just want to say to those of you here that have bought on, bought in, and, and you're all in on the gospel, and you're all in on White Oak Baptist Church, especially the men here that do that, uh, I thank God for you. There's some godly women here. You get on your knees in this room, and you pray, and uh, you're lifting up Christ through prayer. You're lifting up Christ with your voice. I thank God for you. We need men and women who will say, I'm all in for Jesus and I'm all in for White Oak Baptist Church. Now, the, now, there's nothing better than being part of a growing church. Nothing better. I've been in churches that are dead. I've been in churches that are thriving and growing. And when you're in a church that's really thriving and growing, man, you just can't wait to get there. There's a culture of growth and excitement, and you walk in the door, and you can feel the energy when you walk in. And it's just awesome. It's not fabricated. It's not fake. Boy, people show up to church because they're, they're, they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And they're excited to be at church. They're excited to interact with one another. They can't wait for the Word of God to be open and preached. They can't wait to get together with someone and go out and share the gospel. There's nothing quite like 
being part of a growing church. Uh, a church where people are growing in the Lord. They are excited about the things of God. A church where people are getting saved, baptized, and discipled. White Oak Baptist Church is experiencing some level of that. But I believe we are on the cusp. We are on the brink of seeing God do some great things through our church. Now watch this. To the degree that we lift up Christ with our lifestyle and our lips, to that degree, God will send men and women to this place. Why? As we lift up Christ, boy, God's going to send people to hear that gospel message. We need to make sure we're doing our part in in that. Now, the theme of uh, Acts chapter 3 is this. Peter and John perform a miracle. A great big crowd gathers, and Peter gets up and he preaches Jesus. Again, Peter and John perform a miracle. People gather, wow, look at this miracle. And then Peter uses the opportunity, and he lifts up Christ, and people, I believe, end up getting saved. So let's look at uh, Acts chapter 3 closely, and let's notice three observations as we consider this topic, if Christ be lifted up. Point number one, Peter and John's miracle. Peter and John's miracle. Acts chapter 3, look with me at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms, or asked for a, a handout or a gift. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, I love this line, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Lazarus. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately he, uh, his feet and ankle bones received strength. Look at verse 8. And he leaping. He didn't just uh, kind of sort of stand. He jumped, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Letter A, notice the dispensations of miracles, the dispensations of miracles. Now that word dispensations is a big fancy pastor word or preacher word. The the three letter word that's easier to understand is the word era, the era of miracles. And so I want to just take a minute out of the message and sort of help us understand uh, what a lot of churches get tripped up on here in Acts, the book of Acts. We talked about tongues a couple of weeks ago. A lot of churches make a big deal out of tongues. And I want to take just a moment, if I could, instead of devoting all sermon to it, and just take a few moments and talk about miracle workers. There's a lot of churches that are caught up on miracle working and healing services and that kind of thing. And so what about Acts chapter 3? There's no question that we have documented uh, Paul, or rather Peter and John, performing a miracle. And so if Peter and John did it, some would argue, why couldn't it be done today? And I want to show you something that I have uncovered and study 
for this message. I heard a preacher mention this years ago in a message. Uh, he just sort of mentioned it as a sidebar in passing and then went on with his main point. And he made, uh, he made the statement that there are only five small windows of time in the Bible where God uh, used men to directly perform miracles. And boy, that struck my interest and my curiosity and I tucked it away and I pulled that back out in preparation for this message and I did some digging. And lo and behold, that's a very true statement. There are five very small windows of time where God used men to directly perform miracles. And so I began to look at who those five um, uh, groupings of men were and what exactly was that God was trying to do by giving them the ability to perform miracles. Now let me show you uh, what I uncovered here, okay? The first time we find men performing miracles out in the open in the Bible is Moses and Joshua. Moses and Joshua. Now, what did this lead to, all right? Brother Joe, for sake of brevity, did not include these words. I would encourage you to include these words. Um, The key word here is establish. Every time God gave men the power to perform miracles, he was seeking to establish something new on earth. Now, with Moses and Joshua, what were they establishing? They were establishing Israeli independence, Israeli independence. You may remember, Moses, or rather the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, and Moses threw his rod down on the ground, and what happened? It turned into a snake. And then he made a crazy move, and he picked it up by the tail. You never pick up a snake by the tail. I'm terrified of snakes, but even I know that. Amen? I wouldn't pick up a snake, period. But definitely not by the tail. And uh, uh, Moses picked it up by the tail, and it turned back into a rod. He stuck his hand into his coat, and he pulled it out, and his hand was leprous. He stuck it back in his coat and pulled it out, and the leprosy was gone. Uh, Joshua would later be able to perform miracles once Moses was off the scene. So God gave Moses and Joshua the ability to perform miracles. Why? The establishment of Israel's independence. How about Elijah and Elisha? Elijah and Elisha would be the next two men uh, given the ability to perform miracles. And what was God trying to establish there? Well, it was the establishment of God's prophets. The establishment of the role of God's prophets. And so Elijah and Elisha perform miracles. The third window or era or dispensation of miracles would be Daniel and friends. Daniel and his friends. You may remember the story of the fiery furnace and Daniel interpreting dreams and so on and so forth. Daniel and his friends. Uh, What was the purpose? Why did God give them the ability to perform miracles? It was the establishment of a messianic timeline. The establishment of a messianic timeline. Daniel chapter 9, we get the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And I don't have time to go into all that tonight. But basically it was God predicting down to the very year when Jesus Christ, would, when the Messiah or the Christ would come and die on the cross. And that prophecy would be accurate. That prophecy would be accurate. Why did God give Daniel and his friends the ability to perform miracles? He was establishing a messianic Timeline. Then there's no miracle working directly done by a man uh, 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 that isn't God until we get to the apostles. Now, why did God give the apostles the ability to perform miracles? It was the establishment of the church. The establishment of the church. Now, the church is established. All right? I'll hold off on making my point. There's one final 
group of people or one final duo that will perform miracles on earth, directly perform miracles on earth. This has not yet happened. And these are the tribulation preachers. The tribulation preachers. Some of you know that two men will stand at, uh, in Jerusalem and they will preach against the system and kingdom of the Antichrist. People will try and kill them and fire will leap from their mouth and uh, they will not be able to be killed until the Antichrist kills them. Their bodies will lay in the streets as there's rejoicing all over the world and then all of a sudden they're going to raise again from the dead and ascend into heaven. That's going to be a bizarre news cycle. <laughs> That's going to be pretty crazy, amen? Uh, but that will be the fifth and final era or dispensation of miracles. Now, Brother Joe, leave those five up there for me. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Daniel and his friends, the apostles and the tribulation preachers. Each time God gave men the ability to directly perform miracles, it was to establish something on earth. Now watch this. Watch the pattern here. After Moses and Joshua performed miracles, there were you can't find, in my research, I was not able to find a single Israeli leader that performed a miracle after Joshua. Now, God did miracles indirectly through other leaders, but not directly the way Moses and Joshua did them. Now, why not? Because Israeli independence had been established. There was no need to give a man the ability to perform a miracle. Elijah and Elisha come on the scene, and we know Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, right? Uh, but... Um, uh, Samuel was also a priest and secondarily a prophet. And so God gave Elijah and Elisha a tremendous ability to perform miracles. Some of you may remember that Elisha asked God for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And some have asked, well, what does that mean? Well, Elisha died having performed one miracle shy of twice as many miracles as Elijah and they put Elisha's body in a grave but didn't put the dirt back in. And lo and behold, they threw a dead soldier into his grave where his dead body lie. And when that body hit the body of Elisha, he came back to life. That was exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah had performed. That's incredible. But once, uh, but once the position of prophet had been established in the nation of Israel... It's very, very hard to find a prophet who would be uh, uh, predominantly a miracle performer behind that. Now, again, God performed miracles, but more in an indirect way through prophets. And then comes Daniel, and there's the establishment of a messianic uh, timeline. And then miracle working is done until you get to the apostles. Now, watch this. The apostles were given miracles in order to help establish uh, miracle working in order to help establish the church. Why don't men or women perform miracles today? The church has been established. There's no reason for a man to be able to perform miracles. Now, I'm going to get out a little bit ahead of myself uh, with this, get out a little ahead of my skis, and steal a little bit of thunder from point number two of the message. But let me just quickly say this here. If I could perform miracles, people would worship me and not God. And that is not God's plan. In fact, Isaiah said that God doesn't share his glory with anyone. With anyone. And you can see even here 
the, in a minute we'll look at the passage, the people marvel. I mean, they're, they're aghast at what um, uh, he was able to do, Peter and John were able to do. And Peter has to say, whoa, put on the brakes, don't give me the credit, give the Lord the credit. By the way, if people really could, you know, take away cancer and heal someone of leprosy, uh, then why would anyone ever go to a doctor or hospital again? Why wouldn't you just go see one of these miracle workers? The truth is the whole thing is a sham. And don't you ever be deceived by a TV preacher who seems to perform some marvelous work of healing, and then now they have you sending money to them. Be very, 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 very uh, uh, leery of that. Someone says, well, Pastor, couldn't God use a man to perform a miracle today if he so chose? And the answer is God can do anything he wants whenever he wants. But if we're looking at the pattern of the Bible, it just doesn't seem to fit that God would use a man to perform a miracle. Now, one last thing before we move on to letter B of the outline. I want to be clear when I say this. God does still perform miracles every single day. But he doesn't use a man to do it. He doesn't use a man to do it. If someone says to you, I laid hands on this person and they stood up and walked, you know what you need to do? You need to walk away. You need to go the other direction. Because they're probably not telling you the truth. They're probably not telling you the truth. Um, There are reasons why God gives men in the Bible the ability to perform miracles, and this is not an era of miracle working. So we see the dispensations of miracles. Notice letter B, the details of this miracle. The details of this miracle. Now that we have clarified why they were able to perform miracles and why we aren't able to perform miracles, let's look at the miracle that God performed through Peter and John. Notice below that the beggar's request. The beggar's request. Look at Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. And try to picture this in the theater of your mind. Try to be with Peter and John walking toward the temple and walking through that gate. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. And a certain man laying from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. Um which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. So he's sitting out there, he's begging, that's the only way he can pay his way through life, his legs don't work, he's been this way since birth, and so everyone knows who this guy is, he's there every day. And so uh, here Peter and John come walking in verse 3, who's seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask and alms. So he's sitting there and he's saying alms for the poor. If it would be a modern day example, he'd be sitting there with a sign that said, hungry, please help, right? Or uh, homeless, any money appreciated, all right? We see these people from time to time. And so we see the beggar's request. Now he's asking for money, but his true problem really is not financial. It's actually physical because if he could walk, he could provide for himself. But deeper than that, his problem is spiritual. And Peter and John know this. So below that, look at this. Peter and John's response. 
Peter and John's response. Look at Acts chapter 3 and look at verse number 4. The Bible says, And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. So he gets this guy's attention, and this guy uh, is now looking directly at Peter. Now, there's hundreds of people pouring by, and this man's missing out on opportunity to get money for more people, but Peter demands the man's attention. Look on us. Verse 5, And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, I ain't got no money. (laughs) Silver and gold have I none. He maybe pulled out his pockets and showed they were empty of everything except pocket money. Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I'm going to give you. Such as I have, give I thee. And then he says the most marvelous words of this man. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Wow. Those Those words must have been music to his ears. Rise up and walk. I wonder if this man was bummed when he heard that Jesus had ascended to heaven. Maybe he thought, I lost my chance for Jesus to heal me. You know, I've heard all these other stories of lame uh, people or people who couldn't walk that Jesus healed. And, you know, the man by the pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem who said, I have no man to lower me into the water. And Jesus uh, gave him his strength back. And all the blind people like Bartimaeus that Jesus healed. And this man may have been disappointed to think, I've missed out on my chance. And here, one of uh, Jesus' disciples looks at him in the eye and says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. No doubt this lame man knew who Jesus was. He had been hoping for his own encounter with Jesus. And now he's being told that in this very name, he's to rise up and walk. Can you feel uh, what he may have felt that day? I'm sure that he had goosebumps. The hair on the back of his neck stood up. His heart began to beat real fast. He thought, this is it. This is my chance. I can walk. And then, uh, like in sports, when you have a guy on the ground and his uh, teammate walks up and extends a hand and takes him by the wrist and pulls him up, Peter puts his hand out and takes the guy by the wrist. And this guy doesn't just kind of gingerly, wobbly stand up. No, he stands up. And when he stands up, he leaps up in the air and he says, I'm healed. I'm healed. Uh, Notice next, the beggar's rejoicing. The beggar's rejoicing, verse 8. And he leaping up stood. I love this. Leaping up stood and walked and entered with him into the temple, walking and leaping and praising. Walking and leaping and praising God. You know what I picture? I picture that he stood up and he jumped up in the air and then as he went walking into the temple, he was just skipping away as happy as he could be. Woohoo! Look at me! I'm whole! He's jumping up and down. I'm not just a little bit whole. I'm all the way whole. Does anybody need a basketball player? Does anybody need a soccer player? Boy, I'm ready to go! Sign me up! I'm healed! I'm whole! Jesus has made me whole. Boy, it was a spectacle. It was a scene. This beggar was rejoicing and there was no doubt that he was the man at the gate. He had been there for years. People knew who he was. I'm sure someone said to their uh, teenage son, hey, go look out there and make sure that guy's still not out there. Let's make sure that is him. And someone runs out, and sure enough, there's no one there. He comes in and says, yeah, Dad, that's the guy. Uh, That's the one. And everyone's just uh, 
blown away that this man has been made whole. I'm sure in their heart of hearts, they thought Jesus has ascended to heaven. The day of miracles of that prophet are behind us, and we won't see that anymore. And lo and behold, here we go again. Boy, they were excited. Number one, Peter and John's miracle. Number two, notice the people marveled. The people marveled. Look at verse number nine of Acts chapter three. I need to get to the gym and do some more cardio. I'm out of breath. Amen. Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed uh, held Peter and John, um, uh, 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 the, the people ran together unto them in the porch which is called Solomon's, Greatly wondering. And so word is spreading around the temple. This is the hour of prayer. A lot of people are there. A lot of people are uh, uh, around. And there's a lot of hustle and bustle and moving around. And word begins to spread. And they hear the raucous. They hear the noise. They hear the shouting. People are w- wondering what's going on. People are whispering and talking. And everyone's running out to Solomon's uh, porch to see this man who's been made whole. They marveled at what had happened. Uh, oftentimes I am asked by skeptics of Christianity how I can blindly believe in a God in whom I have not seen. Now there are a lot of different ways to go about answering that question. There are a lot of ways to sit down with someone and answer the faith question, the blind faith question in a God that I've never seen. And uh, We can get technical, we can dive into logic and all that, but can I just tell you what the best response is to someone who asks about my faith in God? The best response I can give is the people's lives who have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone say, well, that's anecdotal. And maybe you could claim it's anecdotal. But when you have a whole large heap of anecdotal evidence, boy, it's something that has to be reckoned with. Jesus changes people's lives. Now, I'm sure it's, it would have been great to see a beggar who is lame in his legs stand up and walk and leap and run and shout and rejoice and praise God. That would have been neat to see. And maybe when we get to heaven, God will roll the tape and let us see that. But can I tell you what's even more amazing than someone getting their legs back? It's someone who gets their life changed. I've seen drug addicts and alcoholics walk away from their addiction. That's a miracle. I've seen wrecked marriages reconciled. That's a miracle. I've seen wayward children repair their relationship with God and their parents through the power of Jesus Christ. I've seen suicidal homeless people have their life renewed and restored. I've seen family trees that were destined for depravity and destruction set on a course of functionality and faithfulness. And you know what these powerful stories cause me to do? They cause me to stop and marvel at the power of the gospel. Jesus is lifted up and people who have lives that are totally destroyed. They turn to the Lord, and they fall in love with the Lord. They let God change them. And we're not marveling over someone who couldn't walk walking again. We're marveling over someone's life who is in total disarray. Find that grace and that restorative grace from God. 
Let me ask you a question this evening. Do people marvel at your life? Somebody might say, well, I was saved as a 4-year-old or 5-year-old or 10-year-old child, and I have a pretty boring testimony. What's there to marvel about? There's a lot to marvel about. People can look at you and say, you've lived a life that's free of the hurt of sin. Boy, how did that happen? Well, I grew up in a gospel uh, preaching church, and I grew up with the power of the gospel to insulate me and keep me from hurt and pain. Some of you in here, that's not your story. You have less of a boring testimony. You dipped your soul in sin, and you experienced things along life's path, and you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and He has changed you. And boy, you can hold that story up of, look who I was, and look who I am. The only thing that could have changed me is the power, the miracle-working power of God. Do people marvel at your life? Do they marvel at God, what God's grace is doing in your heart? How about in your home? How about in your workplace? Do people marvel at your life? These people were gathered in the temple courtyard for their involvement in the Jewish customs, but they would soon come to realize that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the temple represented. Jesus had healed this man through Peter and John, and Jesus was about to heal many of them of the disease of sin and depravity. We looked at number one, Peter and John's miracle. Number two, the people marveled. Number three, notice Peter's message. Peter's message. So picture this, okay? Peter and John show up at the temple at the hour of prayer. As they approach the gate to go in, A crippled man is sitting there begging them for money. They stop and they heal this guy. This guy jumps up. He runs in the temple. He's shouting. He's screaming. Everyone's looking at him. I can't believe this has happened. People gather together uh, 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 to, to see this guy, almost like a circus act, right? They gather together to see this guy, and Peter does not miss his opportunity. He says, now, Uh, If you're taking my class at 945, we see that Peter's really good at speaking out, sometimes to his own hurt. At this point in Peter's life, he's learned how to speak out to his own help. And uh, people are about to be helped. What did Peter see? He saw a crowd that had gathered, and he said, this is it. I'm going to preach Jesus. So the rest of Acts chapter 3 is Jesus preaching to the crowd. What did he preach? Well, look at letter A, the credit redirected. The credit redirected. Now, naturally, people want to know who who healed this man. Well, to be technical, the earthly figure that healed him was Peter. But Peter knew where he got his power from. And Peter is going to redirect the glory to the Lord. Now, Acts chapter 3, if you want to learn, you want a lesson in, 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 in crystal clear communication. You want a lesson in how to communicate. Look at 12 through 16 and look at the brilliant response Peter gives to this crowd. I imagine Peter stood up there on Solomon's temple and he held his hands up and the crowd grew quiet. This is the man that healed that guy. Everyone wants to hear what he has to say. The crowd gets quiet. You can hear a pin drop and look what Peter says. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our 
fathers. Notice the inclusivity here. He's pointing to history. Hath glorified his son Jesus. He's tying the patriarch to Jesus. Whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate. When he was determined to let him go. But ye, uh, all of you denied the Holy One and the just. And desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And you and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now look here at verse 16. And His name, His name through faith, in His name twice hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith is which is by Him hath given Him the perfect soundness in the presence of you all. What does uh, Peter say here? His opening remarks are brilliant. Look at what he points to here. He, he first of all says to them, Hey, don't give me the credit. Don't give me the credit. God did this, not me. He then went on to say, the patriarchs believed in Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Hey, all of you Jews, he knows who his audience is. One of the first uh, things about public speaking is know your audience. He knew who his audience was. And so he addresses them and he points back to those figurative heroes that are a big deal to them, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he says they believed in the coming Messiah and that Messiah's name is Jesus. And then he turns around and he blames them for the death of Jesus. He basically says you all collectively rejected Jesus and had the prince of life murdered. Then he looks at the man standing next to him and he says, This man's faith in Jesus Christ has made his legs strong. Peter did not allow the ability to perform miracles to go to his head. Instead, he gave the credit to God, the Son, and lifted him up. Everybody look up here at me for a minute. I'm almost done. Look up here at me for a minute. If you're in this church and you have any position of leadership God has given you abilities to serve here. If you're in this church and you're not in a position of leadership, but God has given you abilities that you're using elsewhere, you be careful about taking any credit from God. I love the song, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Hath Done. He Hath Done. On a regular basis, I'll have somebody come up and They'll compliment my message or my preaching. And immediately I have to bow my head and say, Lord, you get the credit. You get the praise. I'm preaching a powerful book and I'm preaching your word and it's your word that makes a difference. Hey, you get up and sing a special in church. You lead people to Christ out on the street. and uh, uh, Miss Pat, we shared a testimony about her earlier. Miss Pat knows this. It's not about Pat Blake. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ saving that man. You go out and you share the gospel and someone gets saved. Hey, it's not you that saved them. It's the Lord that saved them. We're just tools in the toolbox that God used to build His kingdom. It's our duty to be available and it's our duty to give Him the credit for anything good that happens. Your kids are being raised right and your kids are growing up to love the Lord. Don't you look down some pharisaical nose at another family whose kids aren't turning out as well as yours and think, well, if they didn't like me, well, maybe if you guys could switch kids, maybe you'd have the rotten kid on your hand for one. Amen? But two, hey, if you have parenting abilities and your kids are growing up real well, then you give the credit to the Lord. 
To God be the glory. Great things He hath done. We need to make sure that at White Oak Baptist Church, there is no hero other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be high and lifted up. You know, um, this week, I won't use a name, but this week news came out about a famous apologist uh, who's passed away, uh, who was caught up in uh, a big uh, sexual scandal. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. And listen, don't go diving into the news just to satisfy some curiosity itch. But uh, listen, I I just want to say this. When a ministry is built on a man, when that man falls, the ministry falls. When a ministry is built on the Lord Jesus Christ, if that man falls, some people might have their confidence shaken. But that church will be fine. And the last thing I want at this church is for you all to look at me as though I am some sort of hero or leader. I am a sinful man like every one of you here. I'm just as capable of doing anything wrong as all of the rest of you here. And you follow me as long as I'm following Christ. But you make sure that your eyes are on the Lord Jesus Christ, high and lifted up. And don't you ever, ever, ever put your eyes on a man. It's about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Letter B, we see here with Peter's message, the call to repentance. The call to repentance. Look at Acts chapter 3 and look at verse number 17. He says to the folks here, now he's just accused them. He's levied a pretty heavy accusation. He's told them, you all corporately killed Jesus. But he's going to offer them an avenue to be forgiven. Look at 17. And now, brethren, I want that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. He might have been a little too gracious with the rulers. (laughs) But those things which God before had showed by mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer... He hath so fulfilled. You all put Jesus on the cross, but in doing so ignorantly, you ultimately fulfilled God's plan. Look at what he tells them to do. Verse 19, repent ye therefore. If you underline in your Bible, would you underline that uh, word repent? Repent ye therefore, and here's the next word to underline, be converted, converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When the time of refreshing shall come, from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He tells them, you all, in your ignorance, put Jesus on the cross, allowed him to be put on the cross. But please understand that if you will change your mind and choose Jesus, he will blot out your sins, and he will give you eternal life. It's the call to repentance. Something great happened, and a crowd was drawn, and Peter stood up, and he gave the credit to the Lord, and then he looked at them and said, Now repent and believe on Jesus. And boy, we're not given here the numbers, but we know that many, many people, through sermons just like this one, did turn to Jesus. He basically said, you did it out of ignorance. The suffering of Christ was all part of God's plan. If you repent or change your mind, you will be converted and your sins will be blotted out. And then he says, one day Jesus is coming back to restore Israeli dominance. Only those who believe in him can partake in that kingdom. Let her see, lastly notice, the covenant realized. 
the covenant realized. Look with me at Acts chapter 3, verse 22. Again, he starts out talking about history, and then he's, uh, uh, then he's going to talk about the present. Now he's going to point back to history here at the end of the sermon. Look here. For Moses, the lawgiver, Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Well, who is he, uh, Peter claiming that Moses was talking about? Well, obviously it's Jesus. Uh, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever uh, he shall say unto you, and it shall come to pass that every soul uh, which will not hear that prophet, which will not hear Jesus, shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the, the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these uh, days. Um, uh, ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant, notice the word covenant there, the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Amen. Jesus saves us as well. Unto you Jews, unto you first, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquity. So what was the covenant realized? The covenant realized was that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised to Moses and Samuel. God promised to David that one day a Messiah would become and die for the sins of mankind. And that that salvation would first be offered to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Now, I did not point this out when we went through Acts chapter 1. I do find this interesting. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 uh, gives us, let's see, four classifications of where the gospel is to be taken. All right, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost. This is cool. This will blow your mind. Ready? I got this from a commentary. I can't take credit for it, okay? If you look at the book of Acts, the gospel is taken to Jerusalem, and then chronologically next to Judea, and then it goes to Samaria, and the end of the book of Acts is the gospel going to the uttermost. Acts 1.8 is an outline of the book. Isn't that neat? They took it to Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost. Now, why did it go to Jerusalem first? Because that's where the Jews were. And God had promised that Jesus would come through the Jewish line and that they would be given the opportunity, uh, or they would hear the preaching of the gospel first. And sure enough, that would happen. Peter is saying the covenant given to the patriarchs is realized in the person of Jesus. And then he asks them, will you believe? Will you believe? Now, here we are 2,000 years later, about, approximately. And while some of the details of who it's preached to and when have changed, the message remains the same. You know what the message is in two words? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Let me make it really practical as I close the message this evening. Does Jesus want to save your neighbor? Raise your hand if you believe that Jesus wants to save your neighbor. How can your neighbor be saved if you don't go tell them? How many of you here believe that Jesus wants to save your coworker? How many of you would like it if your coworker would get saved? Maybe they treat you better, right? Amen. How is your coworker going to get saved if no one gives them the details of the gospel? To the kids in the room this uh, evening, how many believe that Jesus wants to save some of your classmates? 
Some of you go, my classmates really need to be saved. Let me tell you, amen? And they go to a Christian school, they need to be saved. How are they going to get, here? How are they going to get saved if you, no one tells them the gospel? You see, it comes down to this. We preach the gospel with our lifestyle and with our lips. And when we lift up Christ by the way we live, and we lift up Christ by what we say, God draws all men unto him. Peter and John, they perform a miracle. The lifestyle. A crowd gathers. They use their lips. They lift up Christ. They call for repentance. And boy, people get saved. And we're not performing miracles. But our lives being changed is a miracle that God performs in our lives. And through that miracle, we tell people about Jesus. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this evening. Our heads bowed and eyes closed. If Christ be lifted up, if Christ be lifted up, are you lifting up Christ by the way you live and the way you speak? The book of Acts, no, un, 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 undoubtedly, un, unashamedly, is what happens when we take a stand for Jesus. Are you willing to do that in where you live and where you work? And even if it means being uncomfortable, you say, well, I just don't even know how. I don't know where to begin. Well, you, you begin by living out the Christian life, and then you share what Jesus did for you. Come to our Saturday morning class and learn how to articulate the gospel so you can share that with the world around you. How many say, Pastor Lejeune, whether it's my lifestyle or my lips, pray that God would give me the courage and boldness I need to lift up Christ in a way that's effective in the, the world in which I live. If that's you, would you just hold up your hand right where you are? Pastor Lejeune, I want to be better at living out the gospel. Amen. Many hands. Lord, help us this evening to follow Peter's example man of great boldness, and you'd use him mightily. We'll see next week how he was persecuted for this. But, Lord, he did it all the same and never would back down all the way to his own death. Lord, give us that courage. Give us that boldness. Help us to mix together a lifestyle of gospel living with a lip, the lips of gospel preaching. In Jesus' name we pray.